We come to you in need, not in strength. Sufficiency lies with you and not with us. Our hope and our confidence as we look to your word now is completely in you and your faithfulness, your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. So we pray that you would shower those things upon us. Fill me as the preacher of your word with your spirit. Pour your spirit out upon each of us, these dear people who have gathered here today in the name of your son. And Father, we pray that what we know not, you would teach us. We pray that what we have not, you would give us. And we pray that what we are not, you would make us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And we pray them for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, today we have arrived to the end of the book of Genesis. This is the last sermon in this series. I realize some of you may be here today, even for the first time in the midst of the holiday season, uh, but you have come on the day where we're going to land the plane in the Genesis sermon series. Kind of wild how sermon series are. They come and they go. You're in the middle of them and then they're over. You're kind of sad that they are, and then you're always excited when the next one begins. But this series, for me personally, in preaching through Genesis, has been very good. It's been a lot of hard work, and I have been encouraged each week. I have learned a lot each week as I have studied God's Word in order to preach it here. I've been encouraged most pointedly in the Lord Jesus in going through the book of Genesis. As Christ himself said, Moses wrote about me. And it's been pretty sweet to consider exactly how that is the case every week as we open this book. As we've made our way through these 47 chapters up to today, several things have been consistently on display. One is the fact that our God is a redeemer. The covenant promises of our redeemer, faithful God, have been on display over and over again. We have seen week in and week out the grace of God. And perhaps more pointedly, we have seen the promises of God and that grace of God in the face of our sin and in the face of our failure and even in the face of our fear. Beloved, we sin. We sin and we fail. And we are often afraid. But God has sent for us a Savior. And this has always been his plan. If anything, that is what the book of Genesis has taught us thus far. And it is very fitting that in this last sermon over these final three chapters, we are going to see and consider these same truths yet again. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Genesis chapter 48. We're going to be considering today Genesis 48, 49, and 50. These chapters, these verses were read in our midst already this morning. My plan for the rest of our time together in God's Word today is to consider this text in five points. So five points and then a brief conclusion. Kind of a conclusion to this message, but also a conclusion to this series. So we will launch off with point number one. Jacob blesses Joseph's sons. Point one, Jacob blesses Joseph's sons. We're going to look at chapter 48, verses 1 through 22. Just something to remember, keep in your mind as we embark here. 
when Joseph got out of prison and was elevated to Pharaoh's right hand, one of the things that happened was he was given a wife. He was given an Egyptian wife. Her name was Asenath. She was the daughter of a priest named Potiphar, not to be confused with Potiphar. She and Joseph had two sons. Manasseh was born first, and Ephraim was born second. So with all that in view, first seven or so verses of chapter 48, Joseph learns that his father is ill. Even at the end of chapter 47, Jacob was not doing well, but in a pointed way, in chapter 48 and verse 1, Joseph gets word that his father is ill. And so Joseph goes to see his dad, and he takes his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When he arrives, Jacob is told, that Joseph has come to see him. And it's clear that Jacob is pretty bad off because he has to summon strength just to sit up in bed, right, in order to talk to his son. Just as a note, we have seen the effects of the fall, the effects of sin in various ways throughout Genesis, and we see them again here. One of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, is dying of illness, This is the first time that illness is explicitly mentioned in the scripture, for those of you who are interested in that piece. But one of the patriarchs is dying of illness, no less. Jacob is going to talk with Joseph. He begins by talking with him about his past. He recounts to Joseph what God had done for him. And God had done quite a lot. He recounts for Joseph what God had promised to him. He talks even of when God appeared to him at Bethel, that place that was formerly known as Luz, right? It's renamed Bethel. In the land of Canaan, God appeared to him there. Chapter 28, you may remember. The Lord had promised him land, and the Lord had promised him descendants, just like the Lord had promised to Abraham, and just like the Lord had promised to Isaac. He made those same promises to Jacob. And then in our text today, there's an adoption that takes place. Kind of a surprising one, not necessarily something we would expect. Jacob has just quoted God and recounted the promises of God that were made to him. He's told his son about those. And now he says to Joseph that Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are going to be his. They're going to be Jacob's sons. The grandfather is adopting the grandsons, in other words. And this is significant Manasseh and Ephraim, through this adoption, are going to be made co-heirs with the sons of Jacob. They are brought into the covenant, in other words. The promises that had been made to Jacob himself by God. They are elevated, Manasseh and Ephraim are, to now being recipients of the blessing that Jacob will give to his sons. And what's more, the blessing that they're going to receive from Jacob through their father Joseph is actually the blessing of the firstborn. That blessing of the firstborn is effectively going to pass through Joseph to Ephraim and Manasseh. If you recall, Reuben, who was the biologically firstborn son of Jacob, had disqualified himself from the blessing of the firstborn by having relations with Bilhah, one of his father's co-wives. That occurred in chapter 35. First Chronicles chapter 5 actually speaks to this reality of 
the blessing of the firstborn. Regarding Reuben, 1 Chronicles 5 says this, He was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. The birthright belonged to Joseph and was given to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. In all of this, remember, this is a big deal in part because Joseph had married an Egyptian woman. So his sons were not full Hebrew. With this adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh, we see a picture of how one day Gentiles, those who were far off, would be grafted into the chosen people of God through the blood of Christ. That's here. Jacob is effectively saying, just as Reuben and Simeon, his first two sons born to him, just as Reuben and Simeon are my sons, Ephraim and Manasseh are my sons as well. We're told that none of the other sons of Joseph will be formally adopted by Jacob this way, but those other children of Joseph would be called by their brothers' names. Their inheritance would fall under the inheritance of Ephraim and Manasseh. And that's going to matter moving forward. Then finally, in verse 7, Jacob recalls Rachel's death. Rachel is Joseph's mother, Jacob's beloved wife. He recounts her death. And it seems at least in some way he is doing what he's doing for Joseph's sons in order to honor Rachel. Now, beginning in verse 8, we move on to something a little bit more formal. This too is significant. In verse 8, Jacob looks at Joseph. Joseph's brought Ephraim and Manasseh in the room at this point. Jacob says, who are these? It's kind of a confusing question, right, in the context, but I think how we should understand this is kind of how we would understand the liturgy at a ceremony or a service. Kind of like in a wedding. We all kind of know who the bride and the groom are. We know who's given the bride away, but the preacher, the officiant, will say, who brings this woman to give her away? It's a formal ceremony. I think something similar is going on here. Blessing, in a formal sense, is about to be communicated and conveyed. So Jacob says, who are these? Jacob is going to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. We're told that Jacob's eyes are dim with age. That's kind of a little throwback to his own father, Isaac, if you recall those events. When Isaac was blessing unintentionally Jacob rather than Esau. And then there's this tender moment. Jacob says to Joseph that he never thought he would see his face. For decades he thought he was dead. And now the Lord has allowed him to see even Joseph's own sons. There is reason even in the midst of death for joy. Joseph, for his part, is going to try to orchestrate this properly. After all, irrevocable blessing is about to be pronounced. So he brings Manasseh, who is the firstborn, to Jacob's right hand. He's going to help dad out. He's going to put him right where he needs to be. He brings Ephraim, the younger, to Jacob's left hand. And then we're told that Jacob crosses his hands as he's going to bless the two boys. He crosses his hands and then he begins to pronounce his blessing. Having put his hands on the wrong son, right? He blesses the two boys. He blesses them saying, may the God of Abraham and Isaac, who has been his shepherd and redeemer his entire life, he prays that God would bless the boys. It's a really good blessing 
in verses 15 and 16. Now, Joseph, for his part, again, sees what his father has done. He's displeased. He just assumes it's a mistake or that dad is kind of losing it, not thinking well, not thinking clearly. He even tries to correct his dad. He says, no, not this way, father. You need to to put your hands on the right son. To which Jacob responds by saying to Joseph, son, I, I know. I know. This is what I mean to do. Now, as we consider this and its significance, over and over again in Genesis, we've seen this kind of reversal happen. We've seen this kind of reversal where the blessings that would customarily go to the firstborn child go to a child born later. Two things of significance to consider about that, this pattern of reversal. Number one is simply that it teaches us about God's grace. This pattern of reversal teaches us that God does not work the way that we would think on the basis of merit. He actually gives blessings to those who, objectively speaking, do not deserve them. That's big. But a second significant observation, perhaps maybe more significant, is that this teaches us something about how God would redeem us in Christ and how Christ would actually secure all the blessings of God for us. Like, brother, what are you talking about? What I'm talking about is this. Jesus is referred to at multiple points in the scriptures. He is referred to regularly, has been throughout the history of the church, as the second Adam. There was the first one. Jesus is the second one. Born later in time than the first Adam. And it is not through the first Adam that we receive the blessing of God's salvation, but rather the second one. Jesus earns the blessing of God, and we are given that blessing on account of him. God will do, in other words, his greatest work in giving us the blessing of his inheritance through the second and greater Adam, who is Jesus, not through the first Adam. That, that very Christ-centered, redemptive, historical thing is laced throughout the book of Genesis when we think about Cain and Abel when we think about Ishmael and Isaac, when we think about Esau and Jacob, when we think about Manasseh and Ephraim, these reversals occur over and over. And I'm saying, and others have said, we ought to read our Bibles that way, seeing even in that how the Lord would give us the blessing of an eternal inheritance, not through the first, Adam, but the second one. Read your Bible that way. Jacob, in our text here, finishes at the end of chapter 48, giving this blessing to the firstborn, to the sons of Joseph. And then Jacob acknowledges to Joseph that he is about to die. That's clear. But he comforts his son and he says, God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. This brings us to point two. Point two, the last will and testament of Jacob. The last will and testament of Jacob. We're going to look at chapter 49, verses 1 through 27. For just a moment. Jacob is going to gather all of his sons around him and he is going to bless them. And what he is doing is going to speak words that in some way forecast things that will occur. Things that will occur in some cases with the sons directly. 
and in other cases will occur with their descendants and in their descendants. This chapter is prophetic in nature and poetic in style. There's a lot of imagery and metaphorical language. It is interesting that the phrase rendered in days to come at the end of chapter 49 and verse 1 is the same phrase the prophets use when writing of the latter days in which the Christ would come. Now just by way of truth and advertising here, I'm not going to comment on the words to each of the sons. I'm going to hit the highlights for us. We are going to consider the highlights together. We'll begin with Reuben, the firstborn. We've considered him already. But we see here, even in verses 3 and 4, how he is cut off from the blessing of the firstborn because of his transgression with his father's co-wife. Then we move on to Simeon and Levi in verses 5 to 7. They are the second and third born, respectively. The words of Jacob here are also not positive. They point back to when these two brothers in particular, these two sons, had taken the lead in the massacre at Shechem, chapter 34 after their sister Dinah had been defiled, where Simeon and Levi led in the slaughter of all of the men of the city on account of their sister. And so the blessing is not going to pass to them either. So far, again, nothing positive. Then we come to Judah. We're told that Judah's brothers will praise him, that he will conquer his enemies and that his brothers will bow down to him. Now, as we've considered, this blessing that Judah is receiving is not because Judah deserves it and his brothers don't. That's been made clear. There is one who will come from Judah's line who is righteous, who deserves all glory and honor and blessing and praise. His name is Jesus. And it is because of him that Judah gets this blessing. In other words, like reorient our thinking, right? We tend to think backwards when it comes to this stuff according to the economy of God. It is because Jesus will come from Judah's line that Judah gets this blessing, not the other way around. Judah, we're told, is mighty and formidable like a lion. In verse 10, if there were any doubt as to who the ultimate reference is in these verses, verse 10 opens and shuts that pretty quickly. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him or it could be rendered until he comes to whom it belongs. This is in reference to the Messiah, the anointed one. And to him, that promised offspring of Judah, shall the obedience of the peoples belong. Now we see this somewhat established even in the Davidic line of kings, the kings of Judah, but ultimately this all will be fulfilled in Christ. These words regarding Judah and his descendants. Verses 11 and 12 describe the Messiah and his kingdom. The kingdom of the Messiah is going to be one characterized by lavish blessing, by abundance, this imagery here is cool. It's going to be so abundant. It's going to be so blessed. There's going to be so much lavishness that you can tie your colt to the choicest of vines, something you would never do in real life because you wouldn't want that choice vine destroyed. But because there are so many, tie your animal up to it. Doesn't matter. There's so much abundance that 
You would wash your clothing in fine wine because fine wine apparently is as common as water. It's like, you know, a modern equivalent of like lighting your candles with $100 bills. That's the imagery. It's kind of like the streets of gold in the new heavens and the new earth. We hear that and our take on that is, oh my gosh, like it's going to be so incredible that there's gold everywhere. But that's actually not how we should take that. The point there is that gold is going to be so commonplace in God's redeemed earth in the kingdom of the Christ that it is as valuable as asphalt would be to us. This is how incredible the kingdom of the Christ will be, how much blessing and abundance there will be. In verse 12, we read of the Messiah himself and how glorious he will be. The Messiah will come from Judah. He will be powerful like a lion and will even be referred to by one of the apostles as the lion of the tribe of Judah. His kingdom will have no end and will be filled with extravagant blessing. All that right here in Genesis chapter 49. We move on now to Joseph, the second to the last son, the second to the last son who is blessed in this chapter. For Joseph, there will be tremendous blessing, power, and wealth in his lineage. He has been through difficulty, but he will be blessed significantly. All of this comes true. The northern kingdom of Israel would be associated with Joseph's offspring. Ephraim is going to be the major predominant tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. And that kingdom would experience great prosperity. Now, just a brief word on the history of God's people. Of course, unlike Joseph, the northern kingdom would be unfaithful and would be destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And in the aftermath of all that, the southern kingdom of Judah, which is comprised of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, would be all that remained. So we now have the stage set for the 12 tribes of Israel and the history of God's people in that regard. Brings us to point three, the death and burial of Jacob. Point three, the death and burial of Jacob. We're going to look at chapter 49 and verse 28 through chapter 50 and verse 14. So in these verses, Jacob charges his sons to bury him in the promised land, in the cave that his grandfather Abraham purchased from this Hittite named Ephraim. We learned of that in chapter 25. With all of this, blessings conveyed, his final like will and testament communicated, Jacob has said all he needs to say, and he draws his feet up into his bed and breathes his last. The last of the patriarchs is dead. Joseph's grief is described, and then Joseph has the Egyptian physicians embalm his father's body, and we're told that there is mourning in Egypt for Jacob 70 days. That's kind of a big deal. Most powerful nation on earth, this man was well-known enough, at least on account of his son, that there is 70 days of national mourning. Then there is this whole thing of getting Jacob's body back to Canaan for burial. It's quite a production. There's a massive group of people involved, We're told that even the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of Pharaoh's household and the elders of the land of Egypt are a part of this great company that make their way to Canaan. All of these people stop on the other side of the Jordan at a place called Atad, and there are another seven days of lamentation and mourning. And the Canaanites, as they observe all of this, are so struck by it that they rename the place a name that means the mourning of Egypt. Jacob's sons then bury him in the cave 
of Machpelah where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah have all been buried. And then they all, Joseph and his brothers and the whole party, return to Egypt. Now you might think that this is where the book would end. But it isn't. There is some significant stuff yet to consider. Which brings us to point four. Point number four, God's purposes as a redeemer. God's purposes as a redeemer. We're going to look at verses 15 through 21 of chapter 50. This is where things, if possible, get more gripping. Verse 15 makes it very clear that the brothers of Joseph are still carrying around guilt. They're still carrying around fear. And they're carrying that around because of the sins that they had committed against Joseph decades ago. They're afraid. You get this, right? They suspect that Joseph, now that their father is dead, will finally drop the hammer on them. Now, dad's gone. Perhaps Joseph was being good to us for dad's sake. Dad's gone. And now he's finally going to seek vengeance for what we did to him. Recompense is coming in the mind of these brothers, in the minds of these men. So they have a message sent to Joseph. We're never told that Jacob learned of what happened to Joseph. So as I'm reading this, and as many others have read this text, it seems as though this message that they have sent to Joseph is a fabricated message, something that their father supposedly said before he died, right? So they have a message sent to Joseph with a fabricated statement that their father had made before he died. Basically, be good to your brothers. And then the brothers themselves come and they fall down before Joseph and say, behold, we are your servants. They're humbling themselves. And it's clear, again, that they're afraid because look at how Joseph perceives that and responds to them. His response is remarkable, and his response is basically the same response he had when he and his brothers were first reconciled like 20 years before. You remember that in chapter 45, where he said to them, then I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. That's what he said 20 years before. And then here, he looks to them, and he says, first words out of his mouth, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people, or numerous people, right, should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And then if there were any doubt, Moses makes it quite plain, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, we have considered at multiple points how Joseph is a type, a shadow of Christ a pointer to the Lord Jesus and what he would come to do. And as has been the case at other points in the life of Joseph, the volume on that 
is cranked way up. In his words here, consider them. Do not be afraid. Do not carry guilt and shame over what you did to me, because here is what God has done. Do not be afraid. You meant all of this for evil, but God meant something else. Now, a few things here. Let's think about this together. That word, meant, is a significant word in these verses. The brothers meant something, and God meant something. That word meant is especially important as it pertains to God, because this text does not read that what the brothers meant for evil, God worked for good. Mm -mm. Not what it says. Why does that matter? Well, because the brothers made choices. They deliberated. They did what they wanted to do. They had purposes, their own purposes. Now, if that is not legitimate agency, then I don't know what is. And it is in that and through that, not apart from that, that God meant good. Now, marvel at that. Stand in wonder at that. It is the clear testimony of the scriptures that this is how God works. What humans mean for evil, God means for good. Break your brain. Joseph is speaking to his brothers. Don't be afraid. I mean, yeah, you meant all this for evil. You sinned against me. But what was really happening was God was bringing me down to Egypt through your sin, through it, so that he might bring about salvation for the world. Smoke, right? That's incredible. And it ought to make us think this is exactly what the Lord did through Christ and his coming to earth to save the world. This is Acts chapter 2, Peter's Pentecost sermon. This is Acts chapter 4, where we are told explicitly that it was at the hands of evil men who did what they wanted to do that the Lord Jesus was crucified. And that in that, the Lord God was accomplishing precisely what he had meant to accomplish from before the foundations of the world. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 is a well-known verse to many. It is a beloved verse to many, with good reason. And at the same time, it's important that we would grasp this and think in these terms. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 is not simply about the sovereignty of God. As great as that is. Don't, in other words, don't just stand. Don't simply stand and marvel at the sovereignty of God from this verse. Marvel at the sovereignty of God as a savior from this verse. There's a difference in that. Marvel at his sovereignty, his wisdom, his plan as a redeemer. Because his sovereignty, his power, his wisdom, he uses these. He employs these in the redemption of sinners like you and me. Joseph's word to his brothers is quite simply, do not be afraid. 
I want us to reflect more on this. We're spending some time here with good reason. Joseph says to his brothers, do not be afraid. And I can't help but think that we are like Joseph's brothers. We are like them. The guilt of their sin had stayed with them for decades. Decades. At this point in time, not only had there been some reconciliation 20 years prior, but there was another 13, 15 years before that that they had actually done the deed of selling Joseph into slavery. You remember back in chapter 42 when the brothers were beginning to be tested by Joseph. They didn't know who he was, but these tests are coming upon them. They were convinced at that point in time that their sin against their brother was why all of that distress was coming upon them. And then, when they were first reconciled to Joseph, just to be clear again, 20 years prior, Joseph had spoken words of comfort then. He had spoken words of forgiveness then. He had spoken words of absolution, like don't carry guilt around then. And here they are, 20 years later, And decades removed from when when they had sold Joseph into slavery, and they are afraid because of their sin. There are things that we can't help but think when we read words like that, and when we think about words like that. I know, just disclaimer, I know that we are all wired differently. We all have different constitutions different frames in terms of how we think, how we tick, how we operate. Fair. And so maybe what I'm about to say won't apply to every single individual in the room, though I would suggest that it does, but maybe just in slightly different ways. I think most all of us deep down, deep within, there is a sense in which we are like Joseph's brothers. We tend to think about God the way they thought about Joseph. We tend to think about God the way they thought about him. We are haunted by our sin. We carry guilt. We carry shame. We carry fear around all the time. There is a haunting suspicion, for many of us at least, maybe not now, but at some point God's going to flip the script. He's been biding his time. He's been patient but eventually he's going to drop the hammer and there will be retribution. We're haunted. It's like, yeah, maybe there is peace with God for some people, but is there peace with God like forever for even me? We fear. It's like, yes, Jesus is a friend of sinners. He is gentle and lowly, but at some point in the future, because of what I've done or what I have failed to do, he will be hard and harsh with me. We fear. Yes, Jesus intercedes for sinners. He advocates for sinners when they sin, but at some point in the future, because I have sinned too much or have not loved enough, he will judge and condemn me. You ever been there? I've said before that I aim to preach as a struggling sinner to struggling sinners. I struggle with these fears, with these doubts, with these wrestlings. The reason in part that I do is because I am painfully aware 
I trust you are too, that I should have loved, I should love so much more. That I should have sinned, and I should sin so much less. Like, will Jesus save even a wretch like me? Now, notice, not can he save a wretch like me. I know he can. I know he's able. But will he is the question. The wrestling in our fallenness and in our weakness and in our frailties and in our doubting, the wrestling is over Christ's heart and his posture toward us, not his ability. Because, straight up, I am disappointed in me. How in the world could the perfect one who upholds the universe by the word of his power not also be disappointed? This is where, like, exhale, this is where we thank God that Jesus is not like us. Amen? From one struggling sinner to another, let me ask you a few questions. And this is like the participatory time where you can answer back and nod your head and all that good stuff. Can you do what God requires in order to merit eternal life? No. Do you know that you need Jesus? Yes. What do you need him for? To make satisfaction for your sins? Yes. For righteousness? Yes. For eternal blessedness, yes. For resurrection, yes. Amen, right? And on the basis of those answers, on the basis of that testimony, what do you suspect Christ's word to us will be? What do you suspect his word to us is? I would suggest something like, do not be afraid. Is his word to us. Yes, you have sinned against me. But I have been sent before you so that you might have life. So do not fear. I will take care of you. I will raise you up on the last day and you will never be put to shame. I promise. That's his word to us. One other thing before we move on. When Joseph spoke to his brothers here in verses 19 and following. He led off with this rhetorical question, am I in the place of God? The answer to that in his situation is, of course, no, he's not in the place of God. He goes on to convey that God is the one who has been at work in all of the events of his own life and even in the sin of his brothers. In other words, Joseph does not understand himself to be in a place to exact retribution from his brothers because of the work of God. Now, as wonderful as that is, that's a really good word. The reality for the saints in Christ is even better. That's because Jesus is in the place of God. He is God. And the scripture bears witness that he is the one who will judge all people at the end of history. He is the one who will sit on the throne of judgment. It is precisely Jesus who is in the position to exact retribution and administer justice. It is precisely him. So do you see what that means for us? 
May God give us faith that this would penetrate, right? The one who will judge us is the one who died for us. The one who will judge us is the one who literally stands for us to represent us. The one who will judge us on principles of righteousness is the one who has given us his own righteousness to be our righteousness. Joseph told his brothers not to fear. How much more so is the word of Jesus to us, beloved, do not be afraid. May the Lord Jesus comfort his people this morning. This brings us to point number five. This one will be succinct. And then a brief conclusion. Point number five, the death of Joseph. The death of Joseph from verses 22 to 26. The end of the book. Joseph, we're told, would remain in Egypt the rest of his days and die at the age of 110. And when he is near death, he says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this is almost verbatim what Jacob had said to Joseph in chapter 48, verse 21. This is exactly what the Lord had said to Jacob in chapter 46. And this is the refrain that we have read over and over and over again, that the Lord spoke to Abraham, that the Lord spoke to Isaac, that the Lord spoke to Jacob, and that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have reiterated to their loved ones. So just a takeaway there. It's instructive for us, right? The Lord continually reiterates his covenant promises to his people, does he not? Over and over again he does. And God's people continually reiterate the Lord's covenant promises to one another. This was vital for the saints in the era of the patriarchs, and it is vital for the saints today. As we considered two weeks ago, the last time that we were in the book of Genesis, we build our lives and our very faith on the covenant promises of our faithful God. So what does that mean you know, for us as a church? What does that mean? It means that in our services and our gatherings like these, it means that in our interactions with one another, we continue to beat the drum. We continue to speak in such a way where it is crystal clear that the lifeblood of the Christian life is what Jesus has done for us, not what we could ever do for him. We continue to speak We continue to herald these wonderful truths that the resting heart rate of the church is union with the Lord Jesus Christ and everything that he has done for us and how everything that is his is now ours. So, a brief word of pastoral exhortation. If there ever did come a point when these gatherings are not about the promises that God has made to us in Christ, or if there ever did come a point when life in this church is not understood to be built upon and sustained by the promises of God to us in Christ, if there ever comes a point in this church's life where something else ever becomes the focus, find another church and fire the pastors because we have failed in doing our jobs. Sincerely. We build our lives on the objective, rock-solid, finished, complete promises of God to us. 
And it is only in what the Lord has already accomplished in our place, and it is only in our union with Christ by faith that this thing called the Christian life can be lived at all. Now, just briefly here. Joseph has his brothers swear to him. These covenant promises keep reverberating around all over the place. They're just popcorning around. And then Joseph has his brothers swear to him in verse 25 that as the Lord will visit them, as surely as that will happen, that they will carry his bones up out of Egypt. In this, Joseph is acknowledging and pointing to the promises of God yet again that the people of Israel will not always sojourn in Egypt. And of course, this will occur. Joseph's bones will be carried up out of Egypt. Moses will see to that in the Exodus. We read of it explicitly in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 19. Verse 26, the last verse of the entire book, pretty straightforward. Joseph died. He was 110. His body was embalmed, and he's put in a coffin in the land of Egypt. The end, right? Nice little bow. Not really. Abraham is dead. Isaac is dead. Jacob is dead. Now Joseph is dead. But God is not. And neither are his promises. Which brings us just to a brief closing reflection. The title to this sermon series was on purpose. Right? Genesis, the beginnings of redemption. Genesis, you know, you ask a lot of people, hey, what's the book of Genesis about? And people, often, people refer to, well, it's about the creation. You're like, well, it's true. Do you realize that's like two chapters of a 50-chapter book, right? And then, well, it's creation in the fall. It's true. Again, three chapters of a 50-chapter book. God does create the world very quickly. Sin enters the world. The fall of man happens. We are plunged. Through Adam's breaking of the covenant God made with him, we are plunged into sin, death, and ruin. But then it's at that point that God makes this wonderful promise of redemption, this wonderful promise of recreation. And then the rest of the book of Genesis and really the rest of the entire Bible is about God acting and promising and working to bring about that redemption and that recreation. In the book of Genesis, there is a lot of sin on the part of the people. There's a lot of ugliness. There's a lot of pain. We've thought about those things. And behind it all, underneath it all, is the gracious Redeemer God who works through sinful people, who works through messed up situations, who works through the sinful actions of his people to bring about salvation. The Lord in Genesis is beautifully working to orchestrate this history that will bring about the one who would come to pay the price for all of the sins of all of the people of God from all time. Past, present, and future people. Past, present, and future sins. The one who would come to handle all that. God is beautifully orchestrating this history that will bring about the one who would provide righteousness, perfect law-keeping righteousness, for his people. God in Genesis is orchestrating this history beautifully of the one who would secure an eternal inheritance, not in Canaan, 
but in the new heavens and the new earth for his people. It is in this one that we trust. It is in this one that we hope. And it's in this one that we rest. And we await his return. Saints, in thinking about the beginning, we should think also about the end. Genesis 1 and 2 are remarkably similar and related to Revelation 21 and 22. So in thinking about the beginning and the end, consider this. We have gained more in Christ than we lost in Adam. Amen? We have gained more in Christ than we lost in Adam. The end will be better than the beginning because we will be raised incorruptible, imperishable. We will not be able to sin. We won't even want to. Amen, somebody. That's right. Consider these words. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Let's pray. Father, we do give you praise that you're not like us. We give you praise that you do not, as has been said so many times today, treat us as our sins deserve and you never will. We pray that you would give us grace that you would give us faith that we might trust your promises, that we might trust Christ and take him at his word. We pray that you would give us grace that we might hope in the resurrection, in the new heavens and the new earth, that we might cling to the hope to which we have been called. We pray that as we consider your faithfulness to your people that you have demonstrated time and time and time again, that we would be encouraged and bolstered as we think about living life in this fallen world. Help us, we pray. We ask that you would help us to love one another, to lock arms together, to bear one another's burdens and sorrows, and to encourage one another in Christ and in your promises to us in him. We pray that you would continue to do that for us even now as we come to your table. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.